Hello everyone, 7 Investing CEO Simon Erickson here, and thank you for listening to the 7 Investing Podcast. Our podcast is made possible by our subscribers, who allow us to empower you to invest in your future each and every month. In exchange, we give our subscribers exclusive access to our monthly stock market recommendations from each of our lead advisors. To support this podcast and join other 7 Investing fans in our exclusive subscribers forum, where we discuss the latest market moves in real time, go to 7investing.com slash subscribe to subscribe to 7investing today. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of No Limits with Christoph and Luke. I think today's episode 24 and for me it's the 14th of August. How are you doing Christoph? I'm doing well Luke. I'm curious about where, where you're at. It seems... Uh not as exotic as your usual. <laughs> We've staged an invasion of Agincourt, which hasn't been seen since the year 1415. So I'm about a four days horse ride south of Calais. We're renting a farmhouse, which is beautiful, for myself and a whole bunch of friends with all their kids. And uh, the museum of Agincourt is just across the road, directly opposite. So uh, we're steeped in history here. It's a really interesting spot. Is this where the Henrys fought? Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm going to completely garble if I try to give you like a, uh, an explanation of what actually happened. I think the sort of cliff notes is Henry V, some young British upstart in 1400 and something, decided that his ancestors used to own like the majority of France, certainly the northern half of France. So uh, took advantage of, I think, the French ruler who might have been Charles IV or Charles VI, who evidently was completely insane. And... Uh, invaded and it didn't go very well and they got sort of beaten back and dysentery and lost most of his forces um, but then they staged a kind of rally at Agincourt uh, where I am now and um, evidently a bit like what's that movie 300 you know with the sort of 300 yeah. Spartans hold off the, the, the hordes of Greeks uh, with their monsters and their gods and stuff so uh, I, think, I think in reality the sort of Battle of Agincourt was one of the more recent examples of like a smaller force successfully, which is the British, successfully defending against uh -huh. the hordes of uh, French. So we, we, we did the museum experience yesterday and it finishes with this really sort of immersive 3D thing and you see the, the kind of troop lines movement and the tactics of the British and how they took down this superior force with uh, cunning and ruthlessness, murdering French prisoners behind their own lines and things. You know, for fear of stating the obvious is you would look... Uh, exceptionally good in uh, armor and on a horse with a lance. <laughs> I'm a little guy. <laughs> we, we, I tried on some armor and I tried sort of waving a sword and I'd be, I wouldn't make it three paces without collapsing exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Would you mind uh, giving us an update about what's going on in the world of Lee Kim 1999? Yes. If you listened last week, you'll, uh, you'll have heard about the exciting news about a superconductor. Well, incredible breakthrough. Sadly, we haven't got there. We do not have, it seems, the, the jury is still out a little bit, but uh, there have been many, many attempts at replication of this superconductor material, which have been such a phenomenal step forward for society, and sadly it hasn't been reproduced by the majority of well-respected, mostly universities, well-respected organisations uh, internationally. So um, it does appear to be a dire magnet uh, is most the sort of broad consensus. So sadly, that hasn't come to pass. And I think as we were observing last week, there was a betting market on whether this LK99 was a superconductor or not. 
it seems that the uh, the bears in that bet, who were in the majority, I think, are sort of three to one. They uh, they seem to have been successful. I don't know if that bet's paid out just yet, but it's looking like a bit of a shoe in now. You know, I, I heard there's some silver lining here, though. Mm. From the investing standpoint, I think put it this way: stocks don't go straight up, right? There is always. I mean, sort of by definition, you have the up and you need the down, and you need the up and you have the down, and it's just over time that the, you could see the obvious trajectory. So it, I think we tend to default to binary thinking, mm. and something like this, obviously, it's maybe binary-ish. You know, the thing is or isn't this magic new thing, and so we've discovered that no, it's not the magic potion. However, from what I've heard, is that there was enough good in this new compound that a whole bunch of scientists now around the world are looking in a direction that they had not previously looked. Yes. And with some tweaks, I, I think it was something, correct me if I'm wrong, Luke, is something that had to do with one of the ion, uh, one of the atoms needing to be copper positioned in exactly a certain way and then if it if it had that orientation it actually did have those superconducting qualities but it's very hard to actually get that atom in that position blah 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 but what if now we experiment with gold and maybe gold has a a, a better likelihood or something and so maybe maybe i don't know like in a year's time could something you're on an interesting track there and i totally agree with you like this to my mind, um, two key benefits, like the one that you've outlined, like this has caused us to realize there are other uh, mechanisms by which superconductors could exist. So there's a whole branch of research that, you know, many PhDs that can be done around this subject. I don't know about like a year's time, that seems a bit soon, but suddenly it will have advanced the thinking materially. But the other thing is just kind of got everybody excited about it, you know, laymen talking about uh, superconductors and the, the potential benefits to humanity. So that, you know, it's just great if we just get people excited about science, it's gonna drive investment and, you know, support for scientists and all the interesting work they do. So, uh, you know, probably COVID and the science skepticism coming out of the pandemic maybe set science back a little bit. So um, it's good to see kind of good positive science news for everyone's like celebrating. Sadly, you know, this wasn't the breakthrough we all hoped for, but exciting stuff and, you know, puts it on the radar. So no complaints. And I also want to mention that, you know, you were the one that really brought this to our attention in the seven investing community, but it's so nice to see humans coming together, getting excited over a common cause, which usually, you know, we're doing the opposite. We're tearing each other apart for something. It was just so cool to see that little bit of glimmer and communities from all over the world. For real, definitely, uh, definitely a, a good little moment where we all crossed our fingers at the same time. So hey, what's happening in the EOS energy community? Are people happy with the, uh, the result of the short report? How's your stock ended up? My investment in EOS, which as I told you, is very sizable, uh, oversized, too sized, <laughs> too, too super XXL sized. It's very rare. It's a very rare th kind of investment for me. I would even say it's an exception to the rule personally. I just typically in my career have never messed with what you would call 
in the moment penny stocks garbage stocks or you know like very low tier level stuff why why would you because it's wildly irresponsible (laughs) yeah right exactly well the reason why you would actually is pretty simple is that uh like the lottery ticket you know one every million wins and then right but for the most part you don't do that kind of stuff so why have i've been so I don't think it's an overstatement, obsessed with this company for about six months' time now. And I think it has to do, uh, interestingly enough, with sort of the same thing we saw in the LK99 uh, world happening, is that there's a problem, and then there's this potential solution, but the potential solution is just, it's either not ready yet, or there's so much skepticism about it being true that there's this like, oh, could it be, could it be, right? And then the EO situation, what we're talking about is nothing short than providing the US electrical grid uh, a way out to deal with all the massive energy shortages and stresses on the grid, which in the big picture affects the entire country, not just the the energy rates and, and power outages going out and people dying like every so often increasingly because of extreme temperatures right but the country's national security depends on the electric grid Mm. like so it's meaning the context of of getting a grid that works the stakes are of the highest highest kind right and so when i look back at the story over time when i hear the department of energy and its main advocate and proponent saying we have a massive amount of money to invest in upcoming companies that will help modernize our grid and a company like EOS creates a product that clearly has benefits over the state of the art uh, today meaning lithium batteries their problem is that they typically they catch fire and that the chemical is pricey right and now all of a sudden you have this magic, in quotes, solution of zinc, much more readily available, doesn't catch fire, therefore you could stack it, therefore you know it could be deployed not just in utilities but in urban places. And it kind of feels like a magic, not magic, that's too, that's too overstated, but the hope, the hope that this can be true is really pronounced, right? If you've been listening to the last few episodes, you sort of get the thesis of EOS, you've described it, but the short report was whether management had sort of willingly or perhaps, you know, unknowingly um, accounted for like a huge chunk of demand that maybe didn't exist. And then that took the stocks tumbling down. So um, what, what kind of came out of that? Our management, is their reputation intact, do you think? Yeah, uh, pretty much 100%. Uh, it's complicated. There are a bunch of legal entities all tied together and these legal entities, you know, they go on a record saying we want to buy a lot of your product, but one of them had all kinds of financial issues. And then that basically put in question whether the whole backlog is made up or not and to what extent the management know, but still represented it. In the end, uh, one, we learn that it's an isolated case and does not affect all the other backlog. Uh, that's important, right? That was the main point. But even beyond that, I'm still going to go on the record and say it doesn't even matter. The What matters is that the demand for the kinds of batteries that EOS is about to make 
is astronomically high, way higher than even any of the current backlog. So even in theory, if the backlog in this moment was zero and EOS gets the proper capital structure to make enough of these batteries, the demand for them would go through the roof, starting from zero. The fact that they have whatever billion and something in interest already is kind of where the investment thesis came from, right? So point being, this short report was a very calibrated scare tactic to put into question the integrity of the management and the the whole company, and it really worked in that moment. Sure. Although I suppose... I would say refuted. It's refuted. I I know later today is the episode we're going to chat about um, like reasons you might think about selling a stock. And like high on my list is, irrespective of you know every other factor and how fantastic the investment is if i don't trust management that's like a absolute no-no for me so i think this, to challenge your point a little bit um you know if if eos started with kind of no demand and you could build a thesis around that then super and you know you're saying that is the case but if management had stated there's a certain amount of demand and that was fake you know that in itself would be enough for me at least to go running for the hills right if you miss the drama my personal drama I was put in an impossible situation of needing to fly and be out of touch with with data at the time that the report hit. And the first thing I consider is exactly what you said, Luke, that given that uh, the CEO just the day before was on the conference panel with the Department of Energy and was talking about how demand is through the roof and, you know, it's all things are good and only to the next day basically be questioned whether he's a liar that piece is what what made me hit the, the sell button. So from our last episode, uh, bad news for me with LK99, but good news for you with your EOS position. Looks like it's on the road to recovery. Uh, well, uh, recovered some. Mm, good. Great. I'm sure you've doubled down yet again. So. Uh, double, triple, quadru- uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do this who's, at home, who's key? Don't do this at home. Who's key? <laughs> keeping score <laughs> what misses Pikarski, I hope. oh man uh the the last the last little tidbit is um i guess listeners will be listening to this two weeks into the future but today is the uh earnings call oh. and there's a likelihood that we're going to get some update about where we stand with the loan uh this week cool. today Great. tomorrow uh end of the week potentially so We'll see. The saga continues. Good stuff. Look forward to seeing it. Let me know what happens on Slack because I've got my options position on this stock on your say-so only. I've done no due diligence at all. Don't do this at home, kids. Yeah, yeah, don't do this at home, kids. (laughs) (laughs) That's, I think, a good segue for us, Luke, to uh, talk a little bit about macro. And the reason I want to talk about this is maybe as a way to work backwards to why would anyone get involved in some of these fringe companies. I call them fringe for short. And one of my my reasons is it's rare, I think COVID, I think most of this happened around COVID and the post-COVID era where I no longer feel confident at all about what I would say the truth of the macro situation. To me, it feels like the, the main theory of complex systems, that there's too many variables and that the way things will emerge are simply too unpredictable. So complexity theory deals with chaos theory and 
when you have enough variables, new behavior arises that is larger than the sum of the parts. Uh, the only previous time where I truly felt uh, wobbly, like really, really wobbly, was after the financial crisis in 2008 because I thought, yeah, the global system might actually collapse because if the, if, if the risk was too systemic. But anyway, fast forward to now, there's two data points I'm looking at that make me queasy. The first is China, both in terms of their demographics and what I'm seeing uh, in terms of their plummeting uh, housing market and I think job wages and knowing that the government, whatever the truth is, we're not even privy to much of it. Yeah. So it's like a black box, right? And just to jump in on that quickly and maybe promote another one of our seven investing podcasts uh, that's you know, probably in your feed right now. Our founder, Simon Erickson, interviewed Aisha Tariq, who runs uh, Macrovisor. And a uh, really interesting conversation. I actually caught it on the car on the way here today just to kind of catch up with uh, our colleagues' conversations. And she's got a really fantastic perspective on kind of what's happening in macro all around the world. And, you know, her, her view on China was quite interesting. You know, they've GDP growth has slowed precipitously down to uh, sort of 5% growth. So a challenging place to be an, an investor right now. Right. And of course, that does not do help us much regarding China and Taiwan. Yep. Uh, desperate times call for desperate measures and that kind of thinking. So, you know, who knows what when a country like China backed with their backs against the wall, what they might do. Uh, and then the second piece for me, Luke, is, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a economist, so, you know, I don't, I don't pretend to be fancy about this. I don't play one on the internet. However, when I look at the massive amount of debt that the U.S. has and the interest expenses to, to manage that debt, when that, I don't know if this is stating it correctly, but when it starts becoming close or exceeding military spending. So I don't know, I might be totally overstating how I'm making that up. Whatever the, the, the interest debt payment is, it's very, very, very large. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it just reminds me on a much different scale of a person working a job when their credit card debt is basically too high, relatively speaking, there comes a point where they can't get out from under it, essentially, right? I, it's kind of like a... I don't know if the same thing applies to countries. You know, you just print more currency. There's obviously consequences of those decisions, but it's not like you run right. out of cash. Yeah, right. But I think the what I'm pointing to is there's this discomfort I feel that the excesses hmm. have become so excessive that the solutions now will require things that are destabilizing is how I would phrase it, right? And so now here we are investors, given the unpleasant 2022 that we just witnessed and how you could easily see quality companies of all kinds dropping precipitously. I think to myself, well, what do I do, right? Especially if we believe in long-term investing, buying and holding and kind of just trying to do nothing. So one solution that I am employing now unusually so, is by buying companies like EOS in one of my top biotech companies, my latest recommendation from August. I have a very sizable position in it now. 
because the way I look at those kinds of investments is that they are somehow uncorrelated from the market. They're more binary. And so uh, whether the market goes up, whether the market goes down, their valuations are so, in a sense, from my perspective, undervalued that if they get good news, uh, their stock price will go up regardless of what the broader market is doing. That's fair. Like, uh, I suppose I classify those as like venture investments in my own portfolio, stuff that is very binary. If you know, it has, You've got limited downside unless you do crazy stuff with options. Uh, you've got limited downside, like you lose your entire capital, but your upside is you know, 50, 100 times return. Um, and you're right, you know, if the world goes to hell in a handbasket and, uh, you know, we all get inflated away, well, if a company's like 100 times its valuation, irrespective of what's happening in the wider market, right, you've still made a very, very substantial return. Right, and it's, uh, you know, what we do on this podcast is offer our listeners some strategies and frameworks to think about for your personal situation, how might you set up your portfolio and some people go all in in on one strategy and nothing else for another right so you might be risk averse therefore you want big companies that pay a dividend and you don't really worry about them right that's perfectly sensible potentially other people are risk tolerant they want the big gains they're young they have income they're swinging for the fences right but usually for me i found that um, while more complicated, uh, gray areas and mixing and matching strategies is also a way to think about it. So, or at least that's how I've evolved. Before, before with the majority of my experience as an investor was to only consider top quality companies. Right. And this is why I'm kind of, to land this plane, why all of a sudden now I have what I would consider lower quality comp companies with big upside to balance out the more stable ones and give me potential 10Xs, 50Xs. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think some people refer to it as like barbell investing. At one end of your barbell, you've got like your big solid foundational stuff that's just going to you know, compound slowly over decades. And at the other end, you've got like the wild and crazy stuff and you know, hopefully one or two of those do well, and they do well enough to outweigh the losses of all of the rest. That's a, it's a great way to invest if, you've, if you get to a sort of more mature place as an investor and you can actually kind of manage both of those different thought processes and ways of thinking about stock. We actually had a chat about this on our Discord today, prompted by a great question by one of our members, Mo. Um, and I think my sort of conclusion, having shared some of that thinking, I just, we, you know, you and I just talking about right now was, I think it's really important uh, to understand why you own the stock, like the role it plays in your portfolio. You wouldn't hold EOS and expect it to give you like an alphabet-like return. You'd expect very different dynamics. It might go to zero. It might deliver a massive return. And you're comfortable with that because you understand the, um, uh, the potential outcomes and probabilities of them and you've kind of weighed it up. Yep, right. <clears throat> so flexibility is required to kind of to, to really intuit and like you do Luke label what kind of company uh, in your portfolio represents what kind of probable outcome yeah and do you um, do you do that in a scientific way because this also came out of the conversation we're having just today on discord um, in a follow-up conversation Mo asked um, 
you know, are the particular metrics I look at, you know, do I look for a certain price to sales ratio or a certain return on investor capital or, you know, some other number. And, um, and I said, actually, I, I classify stuff more now by feel, if it feels to me like a venture stock or it feels like a growth stock, which I kind of treat in a bit of a different way in my mind. Um, so certainly I'm now sort of using art as much as science. But do you, when you look for things like EOS and lots of, you know, the other kind of micro cap crazy stocks, are there particular metrics you're looking for when you pick those out? I think I'm also aligned with you in the more art than science piece. Uh, I think the one category I try to answer is, is this a binary stock or not? Mm. And those seem to be obvious. Like, is Apple a binary stock? No. Just because it's hard for me to imagine a $2 trillion company going to zero. Is EOS a binary stock? Yes, because they could run out of cash. Yeah. yeah. And that's a very easy distinction to make. Yeah. And they're the easy and ones. And that I guess holds there's true. A, you know, there's a whole, the gray in the middle where it gets a bit. Um, right. Yeah. That gets into the trickier, right? That gets yeah. into the trickier valuation pieces. Yeah. And then yeah. that's where the science comes up and the reverse cash flow models and yep, yep. but before that right before that basically i would say that gray area is where i play when deciding whether to make a recommendation or not mm. of of stocks that i think are good companies right. yeah so this is another question when this stuff comes to mind and you think about you know how do i decide what's in my portfolio and what do i buy well the other side of that and we touched on it a little earlier in the episode talking about potentially unethical management you know when do you sell or or decrease your allocation to an idea. I've got a bit of a framework around this. I can share a few ideas, but how do you decide whether it's time to sell something in your portfolio? Well, I, I was asked this question in a, um, in a job interview mm. for, for uh, becoming an analyst, and it kind of surprised me what came out of my mouth. <laughs> And in hindsight, in, in hindsight, I think it's not the right answer. Okay. And yet, and yet, I think there's something there. I said the correct framework for selling is to never sell. I mean, that would, mind you, this was some time ago. This was years ago. So I do feel the investing land, landscape has changed and gotten much quicker and algorithms and all this and that. And I think I could easily disprove that way of looking at things because thesis statements break down but emotionally entropy is a thing like emotionally you're right you know you don't you don't buy a stock generally with the plan to sell it you know if we're long-term investors we're buying stuff with the intention of holding it for a long time right just like just like uh, i think a good analogy is uh if you literally build a business from zero by first literally building the building brick by brick by brick and then installing the windows and the electricity and all that, putting on the lights, hiring customers, right? And then your business uh, sells, you know, $2,000 worth of goods uh, in the first week, you're not going to sell it, right? Because that's just not how a business owner thinks. Um, The other reason, it's not just emotional though, Luke, it's I think this is the real source of why I gave that answer. I've talked about this before, but all of my biggest mistakes by far, and in terms of massive amounts of money that I've lost, have been by selling too soon, right? right? 
it bemoans me and I continue making this mistake. The way I think of it is like the hard part is up front, right? If you do your job correctly up front, which is what we try to do as a team, right? At Seven Investing, we take thousands of potential ideas, we winnow it down to whatever per month. Like let's say for me, I say there's usually three that are, I could easily see recommending one of three. Or five, something like that, right? But but to get to those three, a lot of filters were required and a lot of thinking and a lot of time. And then eventually we get to the one that we recommend, right? So by that time, a lot of thought and effort went into it. I think the assumption is there's a reason for that. There's a reason that those became victorious, so to speak, to have become rec- recommendations. So if... I know from my real lived world experience that had I kept all of the good ideas that I would be much more wealthy than than if I was jumping in and out based on whatever news of the day, mm-hmm. then it kind of seems, I don't know if logical is the word, that if we never sell the companies that we bought, in some we would be wealthier than if we come up with some selling framework. Sure. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. And I've certainly got gains missed out on because I've trimmed or I've sold for some reason, um, you know, for good or for bad. Out of interest, did you get that job? Uh, I did not. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, uh, let me... So maybe that was the yeah. answer, right? Maybe that was the answer. Let me give you my framework that's answer. That. I mean, if you're in the same situation, you can spout some of this, whichever bits of it resonate with you. Uh, so uh, I think there's a couple of reasons why. I, I, I do like your answer, and I think that is the right answer uh, as the big picture. But sometimes I think you do have to sell. And so it's good to be uh, methodical about that so that you're responding rather than reacting to like, the crazy news of the day. In my mind, there's kind of three broad reasons to sell. First one is like just put the portfolio aside. You just need money. Right? You've obviously screwed up if you put yourself in that position because you shouldn't have been investing money that you're going to need in the next five years but maybe you know something super unexpected happens critical injury or something you know you might just need money to pay a hospital bill right you can't forecast that sort of stuff so there's one reason um there might be a fundamental reason uh related to the company itself so you know we talked about unethical management you know maybe fraud on the part of management like that's a reason to run for the hills if the company's just being mismanaged or Maybe just the thesis is broken, you know, um, EOS, you know, there's a thesis and you've got an idea as to you know, how it's going to prosper. And a lot of it hinges around this um, DOE loan. You know, I don't know, but it, maybe the thesis is broken if that loan, if it becomes clear that loan is never going to be granted and the company's now perhaps on a sort of death spiral. You know, don't need to answer that. I don't know if that is the case, but there'll be reasons. There'll be things that do, do constitute you know, this is no longer a viable investment. And so that, that would be a reason in my mind to sell. Um, maybe just the market change, you know, much stronger competition or the product itself has become commoditized. You know, there's a, there's a perhaps good reasons because what the company was selling perhaps is no longer as valuable as it seemed to be when you bought that as an investment. Um, and then I've got a third reason, which is more, not so much about the company itself, but more about your portfolio. And it's kind of a good thing but when you get the situation, basically when a stock has just, it's done brilliantly, it's grown, it's compounded, it's on that journey to a 
10x or 100x return and it's just got too big in your portfolio it's keeping you awake at night so uh, that's a good reason not to sell but to trim in my mind I try not to let stuff get above a 20% exposure um, I know you know you're you're more comfortable with overexposure than I am at these days but I think so there's a there's my kind of thinking in headlines yeah those are those are good reasons uh, hindsight is so devastating um, <laughs> just to be a little bit of a devil's advocate had I locked away my Tesla shares mm. early and ignored portfolio percentages uh, I, I'll, I'll add Amazon to that list I'll add Apple to that list and I'll add Nvidia to that list <laughs> right all bought early all bought quite early at some points in the peaks and valleys of those companies I'm sure one of them would be like a massive dominant uh, oversized position I hope this is outside the box thinking I'm noticing there's a unique phenomenon going on with me and Chainlink right now. So Chainlink is is a crypto asset that I have the highest conviction on. Having lived through the crypto scam era of the last couple of years, all of my Chainlink actually lives on a hard wallet the way it was designed to do. Likewise with Bitcoin. So it's not on Coinbase, it's not on any of the uh, brokerages. A fascinating uh, result of that is that I, because in order to access that stuff, you have to deal with these weirdo addresses and the like sending, moving crypto, put it this way, is from an actual hard wallet, way, way less pleasant or easy. There's a lot of friction there compared to, say, Robinhood. You open it up, press sell. The unintended consequence of this, I'm finding, Luke, is that psychologically, I think of my chain link as untouchable. So in a way, it's it's kind of in its own safe safety box. That has made me hold it for the duration of, of the peaks and valleys of the last couple of years. So you just need to, uh, my, you just need to throw away your password to your brokerage account and then they become untouchable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think this kind of takes me back to a little bit of the of the you know short term experimentalism that I'm I'm starting. Yeah. I think going forward, really setting up maybe multiple portfolios with different access points might be the way to solve this kind of to sell or not to sell problem that the definition of one of them might be once it's bought literally not not allowed to sell unless one of your conditions say that you've come up with is met management is fraudulent okay that's gone or whatever but other than that no selling whereas the other portfolio would be the much more active that, that makes sense. Yeah, and that's that's uh, that's kind of coherent with the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago, where you know you you are going to start playing around with kind of technicals and being kind of in and out of positions. So you know you wouldn't want to do that with your main portfolio, as it were. But yeah, you could do that if you're kind of having this experiment over here somewhere else. Yeah. So you know we bringing this sort of selling topic to a close. Uh, there's a reason I wanted to chat about it today because we've just taken a full review of our seven investing scorecard and actually we've as a team we've sold eight stocks off of the scorecard 
it's kind of rare that we do this, but we do monitor you know, nearly 200 different recommendations. We, we try and monitor all of those act actively and um, you know, for the, some of the reasons that I just set out and, and many other reasons too, if the thesis is just drifting and we no longer believe that these stocks are going to outperform the market based on their, you know, where they are today, um, that's a decent reason to sell. So, um, so we've done that at Seven Investing and uh, you know, we do try to manage all of our stocks pretty actively, long-term investors, but trying to keep a track of them. And I think we've got a fun red flags conversation coming up in the next week or two. So these eight that we sold, we're all unanimous about. But there's, we're going to have some fun with the, deep, with the red flags conversation because there were another six or seven, I think, where uh, at least two of us had a different opinion on whether we should um, hold, sell or uh, you know, keep it as a buy on the scorecard. So we're going to do battle around that in an upcoming conversation for subscribers. So if you remember... That should be a fun chat to uh, ear wigging on. Yeah, and uh, it, one one concrete variable though is that as a team of analysts, we also contend with bandwidth issues. Mm. That as the investment recommendations keep growing, so there's a point of you know law of big numbers in the sense is at some point you lose focus if you have too many, and so tidying up the scorecard that kind of gets rid of companies we either have no passion for or we don't see it outperforming. I think that's a decent reason for our particular context to, to clean house. Definitely it's healthy to uh, do a bit of spring cleaning from time to time. There's a number of stocks in my own portfolio. Uh, I believe in them when I bought them. I'll give an example, uh, an ad tech company called Double Verify and another one called uh, Integral Ad Science. Um, I did some outline due diligence on them both. I took a moderate size position, like a 1% position in each. I just haven't found the energy to actually track them in my own portfolio, if I'm, if I'm honest. I completely lost track of what they're really doing. I couldn't tell you if you asked me without you know, diving into Google and figuring it out. So you know, I had to spring clean them out of the portfolio, so I cleared those out a few months ago myself. Yeah. All right. So, Selling is complicated. Yeah. I think it's maybe uh, investing would be much easier if it weren't for the salary part. And it's all hard. It's hard to find good quality companies. It's especially hard to hold them along the long, long journey, and it's also hard to part with them sometimes. All right. I think it's still midsummer, right? People are still in vacation mode, so maybe let's not overwhelm folks with with uh, too much heady stuff. Why not take a? Why don't we uh, go to the quiz? And I think, yeah, my intention was to torture you this week in the realm of science. Excellent. My forte. I'm <laughs> doomed here. Here we go. Because uh, your, your LK99, I thought, you know what Luke needs? We, we need to go back to the basics. And I've been, uh, I've, I've fallen into a, a common pit hole of mine, which is studying physics and time. I keep thinking I'm going to figure out time. So I've been doing this for some years. So in my, in my readings, I've uh, came across three bits <laughs> that, <laughs> and one of these, by the way, I had already asked a version of it previously, which I think you got wrong. So this is another way of, <laughs> of figuring out whether you learned something. <laughs> oh God, go on. I, th I think I know a lot about this topic, but let's hear it. <laughs> so, uh, Two truths and a lie. All right. The first one. Time passes more quickly for your feet 
than for your head, okay? So the second one is there's only one law in the entire universe, and this includes all the laws, the equations that we have from the realm of relativity and quantum physics and thermodynamics and everything in between. There's only one law that distinguishes past from future, that law being a cold body cannot pass heat to a hot one. Okay. And the third contestant says, heat is not a fluid substance that makes things hot, just like gravity is not a force that pulls things toward one another. Okay, all right. Um, okay, I believe that you believe number two is a truth, because I think we debated that one several weeks ago on the podcast. <laughs> I don't think we arrived at a conclusive uh, outcome, but I'm pretty sure you believe that's the truth. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to reopen that can of worms, so that's true. <laughs> uh, as I'm struggling with the language of the third one, but I'm just going to address the first one, because that's probably the, 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 the clue into this, because I think I know a bit about this. So um, uh, my feet, the truth is uh, that my feet, what do they do? Age slower or faster than my head? More quickly. My feet age more quickly. So my feet are closer to like a gravitation, unless I'm doing a handstand, a gravitationally dense body. So that's like falling into a black hole. So if my feet, are, I'm going feet first into a black hole. Um, and so if, as you fall into a black hole, think time seems to be, for your, at your rate, uh, but from the outside, it seems to take, uh, you know, almost an infinite amount of time. You're sort of, you know, projected on the event horizon for a long, long time. So what does that mean? Is time travelling faster for my feet or faster for my head? Uh, time is travelling faster for my feet because people are seeing my head for a much longer and my feet have already experienced it. So is that if, if time travels faster for my feet, does that make that the truth or the lie? Uh, the statement is time passes more quickly for your feet than for your head. Which is what I just said. So I guess that's, I think that's what I just said. I've confused myself because so I'm not writing this down. So uh, I think that's also a truth, which means... Your third statement is the lie, uh, which was about... I'll just stick with that. I'm not going to try and rehash it. Uh, the third statement, which I can't remember, is the, is the falsehood. Well, the third statement is heat is not a fluid substance, oh. just like gravity is not a force. Oh, and, that sounds uh, like the truth, though. <laughs> and that's right. <laughs> that like that's truth. right. This, the, the <laughs> I'll stick with my answer. I think I got it wrong because I think I befuddled myself with, with black holes. Um, that, but that okay. sounds very true. They're all truths. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> you you out out you outsmarted yourself. It's uh, the the lie is the first one, and it's your reasoning was just it was just inverted. Right. Time passes less quickly for your feet. Right. Uh, precisely for the reason that that you you sort of articulated the curvature in space-time is more extreme uh, closer to the earth which means that much of the space-time dimension more of the space-time dimension is taken up by the space than the time so there's actually less time closer to the ground so in the black hole, it's very visible. Okay, I'm going to take that uh, as a uh, would actually, not a yeah. not a failing of my science, a failing of linguistics, my ability to understand the words that <laughs> uh -huh. articulate my answer. But I'll take a loss yet again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the and the third one is heat is not it, it's not a fluid. It's uh, just 
agitation of molecules oh. and uh, gravity is not really a force it's space-time curvature yes agree that did sound very true when you reread it to me <laughs> <laughs> i'll have my notebook next time i'm on a farmhouse and <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You're just a country bumpkin, uh, you know, uh, fighting off hordes of, of invaders. Damn you for not asking about the Battle of Agincourt. <laughs> right. I feel, all of a sudden I feel scared for for our next episode's trivia, how you're going <laughs> to seek vengeance. <laughs> well, this true truth of light isn't going very well because we're both clearly imbeciles we're getting far too many of them wrong (laughs) we might have to ease off the complexity in the future all right yeah i look forward to hearing some more updates about your your adventures in in agincourt yes and uh look forward to our deep dives which are coming up and can't wait to hear about your your upcoming september recommendation i've got an exciting one it's uh it's gonna get attacked uh, because it's wildly overvalued by our colleague Anaban, without a doubt. He's already started the attack on Slack, but I'm... Uh, <laughs> He's already uh, right. I could see him <laughs> sitting in his lair. <laughs> I'm ready yeah. to defend it. I'm ready to defend it. Right. Very good, Christoph. Awesome, Luke. Uh, well, All right. you've been listening to No Limit with Christoph and Luke. I hope you enjoyed episode 24. If you got some value out of today's conversation, do us a favor and share a link with a friend. Otherwise, we'll see you in two weeks' time. Take care.